Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English here with you, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by the one, the only, the intrepid, the genius, Dr. Josh Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences at ECSH. How are you, Josh? Well, you left out a few adjectives, like Uh deranged, um, (laughs) barely hanging on, and like one step away from permanent psychiatric uh, facility. Well, Josh, lay down on my couch here and tell me how I can be of the most service to you today. Uh, what What are your rates? (laughs) <laughs> I want a big tub of that movie theater popcorn and a Coke Zero. I don't see how you can drink Coke Zero. That's don't cool. even get me started. Don't it, your it, taste in diet soda is it, atrocious. It like, sir. It tastes like moose urine. <laughs> I don't know what that tastes like, so I'm just gonna take your word for it. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, we're not here to talk about um my background in psychiatry, which is non-existent, or um, Coke Zero. We're here to talk about a couple of stories from our website this week, two of the most read stories. Interesting stuff, totally unrelated to one another. First one is a story Josh wrote called, Does Fentanyl Penetrate Skin? A long overdue dreaded chemistry lesson from hell. Always a fun format for an article, Josh. I really dig it. And then I wrote a story responding to Bill Maher's comments about fat acceptance and fat shaming on his show. And uh, non-controversially, I titled the article, Bill Maher is right about the bad acceptance movement. We will get into that. First up, Josh, tell us about this story. Why are we interested in whether fentanyl can penetrate skin or not? Well, um, there are stories from all over the country about police who were inadvertently exposed to uh, fentanyl or what they believe to be fentanyl and they're having all these symptoms and um, the problem is, well, there are a lot of problems. The first is the symptoms they're having are just about the opposite of what you would have if, if you really took fentanyl or it was somehow absorbed through the skin, which it isn't. Uh, it's pretty clear that in most, or if not all of these, it's these are media-induced anxiety attacks. Okay, so if I'm understanding you right, it's not that they touched the drug that set off these symptoms. It's that they thought they touched the drug because of everything they've been reading and seeing on TV, and it's inducing anxiety. Is that what's actually happening? Well, I, I think in, I, I don't know every, <clears throat> every case, but I, I think the story is about they've been exposed to the drug in some way and, you know, whether that's probably seizing pills or, or, or something along those lines. And then they become convinced that they've got a fentanyl overdose on their hands and they freak out. Now I don't blame them. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's all wrong. None of it adds up. And there, there's anecdotal and also scientific scientific evidence that pretty much dismisses this whole thing. 
So you did some some digging through PubMed, and you found uh, you said it was like three hundred twenty eight thousand hits, but you actually looked at some of the peer reviewed literature, and you, it was inconsistent what you found from what I'm reading here. So you found a study that said it doesn't penetrate the skin. You found one that said it does penetrate the skin. You also found research that said it may or may not penetrate the skin. So that was your starting point. Talk a little bit about uh, what you uncovered as you were doing your homework. Well, I hope that cleared everything up. <laughs> There, I didn't even begin to do a comprehensive literature search of this. Uh, what I did was I was just looking for examples of uh, where, you know, it, that, that contradict other examples. And then... Um, the studies are very different in how they're conducted, and uh, that, of course, contributes to findings. So um, I don't know where you want me to start, but um, let, let's say you're – we'll start with the science. If you uh, have pick up a powder or spread it on your skin – the chances of it <clears throat> penetrating are very low. Uh, solids simply don't penetrate skin. Nor do most chemicals if they're dissolved in water, because water is a poor carrier of chemicals through the skin. There are other chemicals, solvents, like alcohol and dimethyl sulfoxide or acetone, that are different, they actually enable drugs and chemicals to penetrate the skin. So um, the first problem was that they were dealing with a solid. And if they inhaled it, that would be one thing, because certainly that's dangerous. If they ate it, which is probably not standard police protocol, uh, that would be another thing. But just touching it, it's extremely unlikely that anything happened. Now, you actually caught the New York Times in a mistake, a chemistry mistake. And you said that they occasionally make chemistry mistakes, especially when they write about chemistry, which I think is amusing because the Times bosses the science that they report on all the time. But the author, and he was looking at a, at a study, he said something to the effect of, um, if it's if it's pure liquid fentanyl, then it can penetrate the skin, and that's what you should be concerned about. I think that's what the more or less what he was saying in that story. Can you talk about that? Uh, he didn't. He, uh, he he didn't say that really. Uh, he and the authors of the paper, and I don't know what the hell they were thinking, talked about exposure and penetration through the skin from liquid fentanyl. All right, so liquid fentanyl, scientifically, would be to take the stuff and heat it past its melting point, which is about 200 degrees Fahrenheit, at which point it turns from a solid into a liquid. Now, there's nobody walking around with liquid fentanyl. What they obviously meant was a water solution of fentanyl, and this is then 
This is given later in the paper. It's uh, 10 micrograms of fentanyl in a milliliter of water. So very, very strange error. Uh, I, I don't know what they were what they were thinking when they wrote that. <clears throat> so that was the, the error wasn't really the Times. It was the paper they referred to, and I, I still I'm still astounded they, that they use such a term. So we're obviously not talking about liquid fentanyl because if you had like a hundred grams of it and melted it and poured it on your skin, it's like boiling water. It's going to eat your skin up, and then then it's going to be exposed to the fat and the blood and everything, and you'll be dead like very quickly, possibly before you can even scream at the pain from the liquid fentanyl melting your skin. If you're in the mood for gory discussion, that'll, that will suffice. Yeah, as a rule, we here at ACSH recommend that you don't pour any kind of boiling hot liquid on your skin. Just don't yes. do it. It is a poor, a poor idea. Yeah, even if it's not a highly potent drug, um, it's still going to ruin your day. So don't do it. And uh, let me correct myself. I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to imply that someone made a point they didn't. So the quote from The Times, the, the, the author, he says, a 33-year-old clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist um, published a case study about the time he accidentally spilled a mammoth dose of pure liquid fentanyl all over himself at work. He simply washed it off with no adverse effects. Okay, so the mistake was calling it pure liquid fentanyl, not that it penetrated the skin. So he didn't say that in the time story. My mistake for, for confusing that. Um, but it's still an interesting point that you're making. Um, so Okay, so you have a section here called the verdict. So tell us, tell us what you're talking about um, in this section. Like, what's the, what's the takeaway for people? Because obviously most of us don't, rub fentanyl on our skin <laughs> or even, or even take it outside of a medical context. Um, so what's the, what's the important point people need to remember, Josh? Well, I, I mentioned three studies. It was kind of tongue in cheek since they all, they kind of all disproved the other ones. But um, the two that said that it penetrates skin or that it may or may not penetrate skin. Those are both done with, um, in vitro models, either a little chunks of skin or skin cells. And there's a very big difference between uh, a test tube experiment where you, it, you put a, a layer of cells and you add a drug to it and then you measure what's on the other side. This has... You know, it, it, it'll give you some kind of idea of whether a chemical is more or less likely to penetrate skin than another, but it really tells you nothing about real life. And in fact, the case study is the one that I chose because they didn't say how much um, he spilled on himself, but <clears throat> given the description you would think it would be a very large volume. I just guessed four ounces. Uh, it, it, maybe it's ten times that. I don't know. 
And I did a little math, which I probably screwed up, like I always do. Uh, it turns out that if, if he spilled four ounces of that strength solution of fentanyl and water on himself, he would have been exposed to something close to a lethal dose. And also something that would be more than the highest therapeutic dose. So uh, if the fentanyl went through the skin, he'd be dead, stoned, or both. The, the important point that I'm hearing you make here, and you actually say this in the article, it's, it's actually the very last line of the story. Because it sounds like people could take the idea that you touch fentanyl and you get really sick, you die as a reason to even further restrict access to it. So you write when pain patients who have been cut off from their meds, go to the street to buy oxycodone and instead get a bunch of fentanyl spiked M30 counterfeits. They do not die from holding the pills only after taking them. So maybe that's the important point we should stress. I know you had, uh, you had a story that you wanted to relate to people that um, is, is is about that very specific topic. So tell us that. Again, it's an anecdote. Um, I, I have no proof of it, but I, I, I believe what the person who wrote in a few months ago was saying. And uh, it was a woman who was cut off from her pain meds, just like millions of other people, and decided that she was going to take her chances and buy what, it's called M30. M30 is 30 milligrams of oxycodone, which is a pretty good dose. That's the most popular counterfeited pill around. Uh, the only problem is it doesn't have oxycodone in it. It's got fentanyl or something worse. And they uh, use these presses to make the uh, material look identical to the real M30s. So you could be, uh, uh, who knows what you got when you, when you buy um, opioids off the street. Well, the answer is mostly fentanyl now. I, I think the, um, the black market for actual prescription opioids that dried up long ago because there are just not enough of them out there. So you have to assume it's fentanyl or something ungodly like that. So um, the person that wrote in told me that she purchased what she hoped was an M30 oxycodone pill. Just to be safe, she took it. Uh, she, she bought 100 of them, by the way, for $1,500. And she took one pill, cut it up into eighths, and took one-eighth of the pill. So she's exposed. She's got her hand in the bag to get the pills out. She's cutting it up. There's powder from doing that. She's fine. She swallows the thing and ends up vomiting for 24 hours. So she wrote into me asking um, is there any way I could tell what was in the damn thing? 
Uh, the answer is not now. Uh, when I used to work in a lab and had access to all kinds of state-of-the-art analytical equipment, I could have told that, told her that in five minutes. But in reality, it doesn't matter because if you're buying M30s off the street, you're probably playing Russian roulette with six bullets in the uh, gun. It's very scary stuff, and it's it's tragic, as you've written many times before. You know, people lose access to medications that they need in order to not live in excruciating pain, and then they go to the, go onto the street and they buy something that's laced with something else, and that's all she wrote. It's it's really tragic. So I think it's important for people to watch this carefully and make sure they have at least a cursory understanding of the science involved, so they don't get misled. Because the media, even a lot of experts, uh, get this wrong, or or they, or they at least they frame the data in such a way um, to be misinterpreted, and that's really frustrating. That drives me nuts. It drives everyone at ACSH really nuts. But it's clear that there's an agenda here. People are trying to push a particular conclusion, and if they have to mislead you to do that, they seem okay with that, which is quite quite annoying. Well, they they are not okay with it. They're they're uh, full-fledged experts in it. And at some point, you and I will talk about what's really behind this anti-opioid push. And I've concluded it's money and corruption. Uh, with, a, with a teaspoon of ignorance thrown in. The, uh, it, it's become so obvious that legitimate pain pills like Vicodin or Percocet are not killing people. They're, uh, you know, and people that die from opioid overdoses, they'll find um, uh, oxycodone, let's say, in their blood about 10% of the time. That doesn't mean they took a prescription pill. Because the average is six drugs that they'll find in the blood. So maybe you've got a pill with a tiny amount of oxycodone and a bunch of fentanyl, and now they're throwing in methamphetamine and cocaine, and uh, you know it, it, it's a it's quite a recipe for disaster. But um, just to to get into something that we'll have to discuss at length later. Uh, people who are taking uh, medically supervised opioids, regardless of the dose, are very, very safe. This is not what is killing people. The 100-plus thousand deaths are coming from fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and if there's a touch of oxycodone in there, it's, it's by accident. So, and a very important point, but we really don't have time for that um, this afternoon. We'll, we'll revisit it, absolutely. And by the way, I, I think you'd be up for this. I would love to have uh, someone like Andrew Colidney on the show or maybe that other physician who recently debated Jeff Singer and just have you two 
dialogue about this if you're up for it i don't know that they would be but i think that would be really interesting because they would cite statistics and you'd go well you're misquoting those <laughs> well first of all this whole group which is called prop physicians for responsible opioid prescribing or i call it physicians responsible for opioid prohibition the letters work out the same uh this is uh you know, I'm not an investigative reporter, but the more I read, the more I understand that there's a fortune to be made in the anti-opioid movement and that these people from PROP are whoring themselves, uh, working along with lawyers who are suing companies that may or may not have had anything to do with the overdose crisis, which began 20 years ago, and, and it's completely different now. Um, so uh, without naming names at this point, these people make $500, $1,000 an hour as expert witnesses testifying against companies in what's essentially um, legal extortion. And what's even more interesting is they, um, the way they become experts is they publish a bunch of garbage, which can be ripped to shreds by anybody who just takes the time to do it. So the, they're self-anointed experts, and several of them are using this so-called expertise to make a fortune. Uh, Andrew Kolodny made $500,000 testifying against Johnson & Johnson for its role in the opioid crisis. And uh, <clears throat> the state of Oklahoma was trying to shake down Johnson & Johnson. Kolodny, uh, for the uh, slight fee of $735 per hour, spent a good bit of time testifying as an expert and others have done the same. So without going into accusations at this time, let's just say it doesn't smell right. Very good. Well, we'll leave it there. Maybe we'll discuss those accusations another day, but let's move on, Josh. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, the legendary comedian Bill Maher, who on a recent episode of his show had a segment on the fat acceptance movement, and he was very, very critical of this this whole campaign. It's been going on for years now. Basically, um, not only pressuring people not to be critical of overweight people or talk about obesity as if it's a medical issue, but actually celebrate people who are overweight and even in some cases morbidly obese you know this is the new cultural meme is to say uh you know yeah let's yeah healthy at every size you know just because you're fat doesn't mean that you're unhealthy so on and so forth and mar was having none of this and he was complaining that as a society we've basically given up on this as a serious medical issue and as a result of that um there's going to be negative consequences. So he pointed to the fact that the military is having a difficult time finding new recruits because there's a lot of people in that age range, that 17 to 24 year old age range, when you recruit someone into the armed forces, 
Um, there's more and more of them who are so big that they can't go to boot camp. And so his point is that this is this has serious repercussions. This isn't just preserving people's feelings as a society we're going to suffer as a result of this. And so he came under all kinds of criticism every not every, but a lot of news outlets wrote stories about it. People critiqued him on social media and they called him a fat shamer and they called him a big industry shill. What else is new? You know, right. yeah. um, How what do you actually say? What actually, what he said on the show was perfectly reasonable, you know, and I've already covered a little bit of it. So he said, you know, we no longer treat obesity as a pre- preventable health, health condition. We treat it like it's a protected status. Like you have some sort of victimhood because you're overweight. Um, he also said it carries significant health risks. He's right about that. We can get into that in a minute. Um, and then he also poked fun at the idea that we don't know why people gain weight and we don't know how to help them lose weight. Um, that's nonsense. And as I said in the story, I was really overweight for most of my my childhood years and my young adult years. And it was only in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so that I've put an emphasis on my fitness and I was able to lose weight when I did that. It wasn't that difficult. Yes. And then he also... You're quite attractive he, sorry. now. I, I, you, you are extremely attractive man. Ah, shucks, Josh. I'm married, but I appreciate appreciate That's the compliment it. all the Be- same. Beauty is beauty, no matter how it's wrapped up. Can I interject? Go, go. Yes, this, you may. You may. Absolutely. Well, you know I was going to anyhow, so I, I was just asking to, to feign politeness. <laughs> Uh, this, this this is nothing new. This is just political correctness on steroids, and that started what thirty years ago, um, when it became unacceptable to say certain things, whether they're true or not. And I remember, you know, a long time ago, um, there was a statement that came out of. Uh, I, I don't know if it was an advocacy group or or just a, like a nonprofit group uh, for people who who are deaf, and they objected to uh, calling deafness a disability, and one one uh, they went one step further, saying that many of the people who are deaf preferred that way and they wouldn't want their hearing back. Now, come on, really? This it's the same thing. Of course they want their hearing back. And like to to equate deafness with um, normal hearing is like equating normal weight with obesity. Uh, there, there are things that you just can't say, and I think that's what Marr uh, was really trying to do. I don't think this had much to do with fat. I think it, he was going after the PC police and um, probably got the attention he was seeking. It's a good point, and I think it's important to remember that this is just one of the planks in this ongoing campaign, you know, this woke social justice movement. And it's really, really dangerous. And and I saw this in in Mars critics, you know, like, like they find a particular thing he said objectionable, but they don't understand that the people they're defending. And in this case, it's the fat acceptance, uh, healthy at every size people. 
these people are not just saying you need to be kind to overweight people, which I don't think anybody doubts or disagrees with. You know, I don't want like when I lost weight, ultimately, it wasn't because people made fun of me in high school. That wasn't what did it right. It was it was people who gave me good advice and were willing to walk through that weight loss process with me. That's what did it. So this isn't about being kind or being hurtful. That's not what this is about. But the people behind this movement are literally denying the fact that um, people can lose weight and that they should lose weight, right? They're denying that it's even possible to have science behind you to say that obesity presents health risks. And they are doing this with lots of fields of science. And so you have to, this has to be pushed back against like you have to knock this down because this is really dangerous to our ability to do science because ultimately they're not just saying uh, overweight people don't have to change who they are. They were just born that way, whatever. They're literally denying that there is objective truth out there, that you have the ability to assess facts and, and deduce conclusions from them and do scientific experiments. It's, it's, it's very much a postmodern movement in that sense. And so you have to, you have to shut this down. This is very, very dangerous. And one of the first points I made in the story, because I'm responding to someone who was criticizing Marr in Forbes. And so this writer says, you know, Marr didn't have a single scientist on his show. He's not a scientist himself. And my response was, well, why not? You know, why is, why is a comedian the one who has the courage to go on national TV and say this? And correct all of this nonsense, you know? And the answer is there aren't uh, enough physicians and obesity experts and science and health journalists who will just frankly put the facts on the table. And so it's left to people like Marr who are not the most subtle individuals, right? They go at this with a sledgehammer, and that's partly because they're trying to be funny. Uh, And the segment was hilarious, by the way. But in any case, there's a really good point in that. I mean, you're seeing a lot of people in health and science who are, who are sort of playing footsie with this fat acceptance movement. And they're not being honest either with their patients or with their readers. Um, and that's, that's foolish. You know, I, I don't know how else to say it. Well, it, uh, I, I would argue that this is no more or less than whatever, everything else that's going on. Um, I believe the new England Journal of Medicine, I'm not positive, but it was a major journal, used the term people with vaginas. And because apparently uh, women is no longer an acceptable term. And there was another article I read which um, described men as penis owners. You'd think this was from some satirical magazine, Uh, but but in fact, this is part and parcel of the same thing that you're mentioning, is that it's become more important not to offend anyone, especially if they belong to a particular group, a a vocal one, um, than it is to tell the truth. And that's not just medicine, that's in everything. Uh, I just raised one question, though. Um, if, if penis owners um, were demanding uh, certain rights or to be addressed as however they mentioned it, 
you have to wonder what penis renters uh, would <laughs> would be up for because you know it's just you, there could be some out there, and you don't want to offend them either. <laughs> I love Josh because he doesn't really care. He just says what's on his mind. And if you don't like it, then uh, you can go pound sand. And uh, we need more of that today. It, that's a good example, too. You know, I, I think the, the reasoning such as it is behind that whole thing is that, you know, your your um, your plumbing, if you will, that doesn't determine your gender. So the reason that they call women bodies with vaginas is because there are some men today who feel that they are actually women. And sometimes they're women on certain days, other days they're men, other days they're non-binary, you know, so you have this really strange movement going on basically where you're divorcing the conclusions that you reach about the world from the things you can see and experience. It's, it's utter craziness, you know, and that's another thing. I see this on medical websites too. They will give you good advice, which oftentimes changes based on what your gender is, because, you know, there are certain conditions that affect only women and for men, there, there are other conditions. So they'll give you that advice, but then at the top of the article, they'll say, you know, um, you know, sex is a spectrum, um, you know, gender is a social construct. So in other words, they're, they're kissing the ring, right? They have some kind of Stockholm syndrome where they have to, they have to be liked by people who deny the science that they put out, but they have to give you good advice too, which is, you know, if you have this condition, take this medication, if you're a woman, look out for these side effects, um, and it's, it's this weird balance that can't be maintained. You have to acknowledge what's obvious or you have to go along with this weird ideological movement. And it's the same thing with this fat acceptance stuff. And Mar was talking about, you know, you have like, you have Victoria's Secret and you have Sports Illustrated. You have these different publications putting out um, uh, calendars and, and uh, catalogs and so forth. And they're marketing uh, clothing to overweight people. But the way they're doing that is by endorsing this fat acceptance movement. So I found one. <laughs> I found one. It was a um, it was a campaign from I think J.C. Penny, and it's called "Fat Girls Can Do Whatever They Want." <laughs> now I have no I have no doubt about that, right? Being overweight doesn't prevent you from doing most things, but it's just amusing that you have the corporate world getting into this now, and they're they're glomming onto this this political cause because they can sell more clothes by doing that. And that's what Mar was poking fun at, you know, is that not only do you have medical professionals who increasingly refuse to push back against this, you now have marketers jumping in and telling their their customers, hey, you know what would be a great idea is if you tried to sell more plus size clothing. And here's this great campaign we came up with, you know. So we've just reached this level of absurdity that's it's almost incomprehensible, Josh. This is not a whole lot different than what EWG does, and you and I have discussed this before. Uh, they, they take uh, an idea, a fear, uh, a minuscule risk, and they turn it into money. In, in that case, it's by scaring people about uh, chemicals or genetically modified organisms. Uh, in this case, and, you know, these are both really cynical attempts to, to make money following up on a rather, I'm guessing, a rather small group of people who are ideologically um, unhappy 
with how they are referred to. Well, the thing is, and again, this is a point I've made in several articles, is right. Like you can oppose the fact that that overweight people are poorly treated in our society, or they were for many years. You can say, don't do that to someone. You know, that person's your neighbor. You should treat them with a certain level of decency that you would expect. That's just the golden rule. Everyone agrees on this. But at the same time, it's not kind to ignore the fact that people are putting themselves in harm's way. And that's just the reality of the situation, you know, so maybe it's not your place to stop someone on the street and say, excuse me, sir, do you really need that large order of fries? Like maybe you should just mind your own business. But if you're that person's doctor and they come in for an annual checkup, you could say, hey, you know, it's not great to be 40 pounds overweight. You're putting yourself at risk for heart disease and stroke and diabetes. And, you know, you might die 15 or 20 years sooner because of this lifestyle you're leading. So we need to do something about that. And those things are not in contradiction. That's the thing that drives me nuts is that, especially if you're a physician, you can say, uh, and again, the literature bears this out. If you lose 5% of your body weight, you're going to be in much better health. You know that you don't have to be a fitness model. You don't have to aspire to the fitness level of an NBA superstar. You just have to lose a little bit of weight and you're going to be better off for it. Your quality of life is going to improve. And This is another important point I want to stress is that when you look at the research on this, you can see that as you get heavier, your risk for these diseases increases dramatically. And there's no way around this, right? I mean, and and the technical $5 word for this is a dose-response relationship. The, The bigger you are, the more at risk you're going to be. And, you know, in the case of a chemical, for example, Josh, since we talk about that a lot, you wouldn't deny that a chemical can be more dangerous the more of it you're exposed to. But when it comes to this, because we have perceived that people's feelings are involved, we're just not going to talk about it or we're going to, we're going to obfuscate and we're going to misrepresent the science to the public. And that bugs me as someone who struggled with my weight. I, I wouldn't have wanted someone to tell me, um, you know, it's fine, right? That would not have worked for me. And now that I have a son who I want to see grow up, it was good that people told me, hey, you need to lose weight because that's what I needed to hear. I didn't feel good, but it was good advice. Well, you know what? You, you, maybe a family member or a close friend, you mentioned this, that you, only because you're concerned about them. That's not shaming. That's caring. Uh, you don't go up to an overweight person on the street and say, hey, fatso, what are you eating? Okay, none of that is acceptable. That's not what this is about. This is about a small and maybe even a very small um, group of ideological, uh, ideologically driven people who have decided that it's not okay to say anything negative about overweight people at all. And it isn't, except if you're their doctor. So I want to know is... Who's made these decisions? What, uh, where'd this come from? Why, why is this being hammered on us now? The, uh, who, whatever group is behind this mentality, they're going to end up killing a lot of themselves. But it, it doesn't really matter because the ideology, uh, ideology trumps the science in all cases when it comes to issues like this. 
Well, not here, because we don't care. We're just going to say the truth. And that's refreshing. I like working at a place where I don't have to, you know, censor myself. Right. In order that's, to, why uh, that's why we're eating cat food, too. <laughs> hey, you know what, man? It's got a healthy balance of proteins and fats yeah. and carbohydrates. And I, I'm fine with a little cat food. It's okay, yeah. you know? You know, uh, a little bit of gravy and those, those <laughs> kibbles and bits are mighty tasty. Um, I forgot to add one more thing when I was talking about vagina owners. Okay, fine. Um, is this some kind of general advice for people who were either born female or have chosen to um, become female, the article had to do with pregnancy. So do you see how crazy that is? It's nuts. I remember when my, my wife, who is a woman, uh, uh, was pregnant you think? because those are the only people that can get pregnant. Sorry to break that to you. If, that's, uh, if that hurts your feelings, don't know what to tell you. <laughs> if that assassinates my career, I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay. When, when my wife was pregnant, you know, we would go to doctor's appointments or we would be looking up, you know, something about whatever stage of pregnancy she was in. And you would see websites and they would say, well, you know, pregnant people experience this. A person who is pregnant feels this. And it's crazy. These are major um, sources of medical information, major healthcare providers, and they're afraid to say pregnant woman. They just won't do it. And it's it's preposterous, man. I it's I, I don't know. Like th- this has to stop. It just can't go on. And a final thought, and then if you want to jump in here, Josh, by all means. A final thought related to the story that I that I wrote. When it comes to smoking or drug addiction, uh, for example, or if somebody has um, a mental health disorder, uh, we don't excuse their behavior because they were born with it or because they're inclined to uh, to fall into nicotine addiction, for example, or alcoholism, right? You don't, you don't go to a smoker and say, well, you know, you have some genetic predisposition to take up smoking. So, you know, it's okay. You're actually not putting yourself at risk. And anyone who says so is being mean to you. What do we do with smoking as a, as a society? We ban it in public places. We tax cigarettes very, very um, severely. You know, pack of cigarettes in some places, 10 bucks a pack, very, very expensive. Um, and then our culture generally shames tobacco use. Now, I don't, now, I don't want to get into that right now. That's a whole other topic. But my point is, is that just because you're you're predisposed to something, it doesn't mean that the, the behavior is excused. And we recognize that when it comes to other issues, but on obesity, we're turning a blind eye to the health effects of it. And that's, that's foolish and it's dangerous. Uh, to be slightly contrarian, I did research in obesity for quite a while when I was in industry. And uh, unless the science has changed, there, there is an enormous genetic component to obesity. So it's, I think that that needs to be acknowledged also, that people, um, some people, especially with two obese parents, they're, they're going to have weight problems. Now, uh, that probably has to do with their diet, but I have a, there's, um, there's a metabolic component to this too, so I wouldn't dismiss that out of hand. Probably there are certain people that 
really do have a very difficult time losing and maintaining a particular weight, no matter what they do. I don't doubt that for a second. Yeah. I don't I don't doubt that. And I would I would put myself in that category only in the sense that um it's it's really easy to regain weight, you know? When like when I revert back to my old diet dietary habit, habits and when I stop going to the gym, the weight comes back on. Um and I've noticed with other people in my life they don't have that problem. They eat whatever they want, they never exercise. And they stay thin as a rail. They never get diabetes. And that's just, you know, that's luck of the draw, I suppose. And it's not fair, but it is, it is reality. So there are some people who, who they have some kind of medical condition that makes them put on weight, but I don't think that's the case for most overweight or obese people. You know, maybe they have, there's some genetic variant they carry that for whatever reason, they put on more weight than other people. But if that's true, I think that's uh, an argument for working harder to mitigate the risk. It's not an excuse to give up. Absolutely. That's all I was saying. Um, Yeah, whether you're uh, genetically obese or obese because of poor eating and exercise habits, it doesn't really matter. Your doctor has to be able to tell you to lose 15 pounds for your health. And these people who are um, have a problem with that, just need to shut the hell up because they're hurting lots of people just to make a point. Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. We could keep going on about this, about the interplay between genetics and behavior, but we're going to leave it there. Uh, all that to say, I think Bill Maher was correct. Even if you don't like his jokes, the facts are behind what he was saying. That's all there is to it. We hope you guys have a terrific week. Thank you for joining us. If you want to get the stories we talk about in your inbox, you just go to acsh.org, click on the subscribe button at the top, punch in your email address, and three times a week we will send you the stories that we write. And at the end of the week, we look at which ones have been read the most. We talk about them on this show. So you can learn a little bit more of the science behind them. So hope you do that. Check us out. The podcast is on iTunes now. So if that's your favorite medium, go on to iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're on all of them. We're everywhere. So review the show, rate it, keep listening. Thank you all so much. And uh, follow us on Twitter as well. Josh is at Josh Bloom ACSH, that, that carefully focused group name. And we are just at ACSH org on Twitter. Follow us. Thank you so much. We will see you next time.